Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film historian and curator Alicia Fletcher and Robin Citizen, Ph.D., Senior Manager of Festival Programming at TIFF. Is there a genre blend that has more spine-tingling promise than that of the science fiction horror? There's so much to play with in terms of themes, images, and, of course, the ability to do damage in a confined space where no one can hear you scream. Jason, the leprechaun, and even the hell priest, Pinhead himself, have caused havoc in space at one time or another. So if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for us and our episode today about scary spaceship movies. But before we get into any of that, Robin, can you talk to us a bit about what the best of the sci-fi horror genre requires to fit in that genre? Well, I think to fit into the sci-fi and horror genre, you have to have elements of the monstrous and the horrific, but also something that places you kind of not necessarily off planet because some sci-fi takes place off on Earth, but with like speculative technology and, you know, technology that we don't currently have. So in the case of Event Horizon, you have this monstrousness, you have cosmic horror kind of married with this um, advanced technology that we don't have. And I think they even say that it starts in 2015. Oh, I was very disappointed <laughs> when 2000, <laughs> it came and went and I'm like, where's our gravity drive? Yeah. We don't well, at least one. the portal to hell hasn't been opened up yet. <laughs> They're about 10 years off. <laughs> Exactly. Or has it? Did we go down the trousers of time in 2016 and then down the wrong leg? Yes. That is the question. Now, so do, Robin, does something like the the first, and I'm not talking about the Tim Burtons or any of the sequels, uh, version of Planet of the Apes fall into that? Because it's kind of sci-fi. It's supposed to be on another planet and it's got a horrific ending. You blew it up. Would you consider that sci-fi horror? For me, it's not so much sci-fi horror. I think there's just not enough of the... Um, horrific until you get to that ending um, for me to qualify. But horror is such a subjective genre, right? Like, I mean, I think, you know, we can argue forever about what constitutes horror, but I think um, everybody's different. And for me, the balance was just more shifted in sci-fi and even like in some sense fantasy, but like dark fantasy um, than like pure kind of terror. Do you have any specific examples of the genre that you would really recommend as being like, these are the keystone moments? Well, I think Alien, for one. I mean, that that seems yeah. to be the paradigmatic sci-fi horror f for me. Um, and then Event Horizon would be another. Which I'm very excited to talk about that one today. All right, let's get into our first movie. So the 90s placed a lot of young and hungry indie directors with distinct styles into low-budget genre movies hoping for a mega hit and maybe even a new franchise. Now, although Paul W.S. Anderson's British indie action drama Shopping didn't make much of a blip in the U.S. market, it did launch Jude Law and put Anderson enough on the radar for Hollywood to believe they could have another Danny Boyle on their hands. So they gave him a can't-miss opportunity a Mortal Kombat movie, which did 
shockingly well financially, despite a drubbing from the critics. So they offered him another franchise movie, The X-Men. But Anderson had a taste for blood that only an R rating can provide. And thus, the eye-gouging hellscape of a movie that is Event Horizon came to be. It's gonna get gory. Here is your warning. Okay, let's talk about this. Robin, what's this one about? So Event Horizon is about... um a ship, uh, an advanced spacecraft called the Event Horizon, which has vanished, you know, I think seven years prior. And a man named Dr. Weir designed the Event Horizon and he has some trauma in his past. You find out through the film, he's lost a loved one. And I believe designed the Event Horizon after that happened. Um, They receive a transmission, which is something that happens in so many Mm -hmm. of these sci-fi films. There's like a strange transmission. They have to go check up on it. Nobody thinks maybe we should check up on it. very Star Trek. That's also Um, like every horror adjacent (laughs) Star Trek episode starts with a transmission from a ship floating in space. Something terrible happened to them. Possibly the same (laughs) thing could happen to us as well. Well, it even happens in Alien, right? So they get this transmission and a ship called the Lewis and Clark, very cleverly named, is closest to where the the transmission comes from. So Dr. Weir goes out to the Lewis and Clark, led by Captain Miller, who's played by Lawrence Fishburne, and they um, go to meet Event Horizon and try to kind of piece together what happens on this ship. So very soon it becomes clear that like something went very wrong on the Event Horizon and now they are in that same danger. I do appreciate that, like, immediately they start running into bodies. They're like, there is no mystery. It's like, no, 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 all these people are dead. Now is something else here going to come and get me as and well? Not, not just, like, dead, but horrifically maimed. Like, the amount, if you, mm-hmm. if, if anyone has a bit of a phobia um, about getting their eyes gouged out, which I would hope all of us have a phobia about that, I would say this is a very <laughs> particular film that you're going to be triggered by because there's just eyeballs just coming out of everywhere. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's a very Clive Barkerian sort of horror. Like, it sits in that, like, it's got all the barbed wire and, like, the things across your face and the scars and everything. Like, it sits in that kind of physical genre for me. It what is. Do you think, it Rob? absolutely is. And in fact, like, it was called Hellraiser in Space, mm-hmm. like, just colloquially by ah. a lot of people in the genre, because, I mean, so many of the set pieces um, replicate the kind of Cenobite torture that you see in Hellraiser and Clive Barker doesn't do like cosmic horror perhaps like I mean he definitely dabbles in it but but taking that kind of extra dimensional hellish realm which is not necessarily hell but a a kind of chaos Mm. that's so deep in this dimension that it seems hellish to humans which live like in an ordered universe for the most part seemed really innovative and taking it out to space where literally there's nowhere you can go um, if some some stuff hits the fan, I think is what makes it so terrifying. What's the uh, tagline of the original Alien? It's like, no one in space can hear you scream. In space, so yeah, it really no one can is, hear you scream. You see like a bunch of people sitting around a table in a Hollywood studio boardroom and someone saying it's Hellraiser, but in space with a bit of Alien. And people being like, uh-huh, uh-huh, bankroll it, okay. bankroll it. <laughs> Here's where here's where it gets weird. You ready? Okay, so this was actually originally written as yeah. an alien ripoff. And instead of this hellscape, it was tentacle beasts <laughs> that were coming to get everybody because everybody's afraid of tentacle beasts. Um, and then Paul W.S. Anderson got a hold of it. I'm just saying that so that we don't, uh, you know, mistake him with the other Anderson. And uh, he was like, okay, well, you know what movie I really love and a bunch of nerds really love? Solaris. So what if this became Solaris and then we, uh, and it became about people 
people's like um, bad histories and their memories. And it was their worst nightmare come to reality or the terrible thing they've done. So also flatliners, mm-hmm. and, but they're in space on a ship. I think that's, I'm glad he decided to not just do a ripoff. He's like, let's just make this a little weirder. And like a lot of 90s artists, they're drawing from that 70s yeah. bank, yeah. right? And if you look at the kind of, the origin story of this film, it's, it's very confusing because it obviously was kicked around a lot. And at one point, Clive Barker was consulting on pre-production many years before it was made. So that completely makes sense that he would eventually um, have this turned into a Hellraiser. But then you also had Paul W.S. Anderson turn down Alien Resurrection to make this film. So it's so interesting that its genesis was an alien ripoff. Then he turns down Resurrection to make a film less alien and more Hellraiser. (laughs) (laughs) Which, I mean, he would then go on to do all of the uh, Resident Evil movies, right? Which I have to say, I have, yeah, I have a soft spot for them. I think they're fun. I think they're violent in exactly the right way that they should be violent. And, you know, who doesn't love Mia Jovovich? But you can really see him trying to become an adult director Mm -hmm. in this versus from what I remember of the early Mortal Kombat movie, which is, I mean, he does the job. It is a Mortal Kombat movie. It's people fighting in costumes and saying the lines that they were supposed to say and doing the thing. We were all around the same age. We were maybe 10 or 12, and that was very good for a 12 year old film (laughs) thank you so much alicia i am i was definitely older okay okay (laughs) when this came out i I am flattered 12 years old watching more combat Now, the issue a lot of people have with this movie, because my partner, actually, when I told him I was watching this movie, he's like, oh, I hate that thing I saw it in the theater, and I was so disappointed. And whenever he says things like that, I say, well, why? And he goes, because it doesn't make sense. He's like, it's so thin, and he's like, the visuals are very cool, and this is why I love him, but I need more substance to my secondary characters. And he's mm-hmm. right. And one of the problems is, and, I, and I, I like a lot of this movie, but he's right that I'm like, I don't understand why a lot of the secondary characters are there or why they're doing what they're doing doing aside for being nightmare fodder. And part of that reason is because a lot of the like significantly more graphic scenes were cut after the the internal screening for or what do they call the test audience because mm-hmm. they were just found it too horrifying. And it, apparently it was a B unit that shot all of that stuff and they used people from S&M clubs, they had amputees, they had like a hmm. but like we're talking like beyond beyond kind of Clive like definitely Clive Barker imagery but like mm-hmm. kind of beyond that. And uh the director apparently the second unit director apparently came back with like a thousand yards stare like he'd seen <laughs> terrible atrocities and was like <laughs> yeah he's like you don't want to see what we're shooting over there guys well, you just don't want to see that like, <laughs> was going to lead to an mc-17 which is basically a death nail like you can't have a sci-fi horror that's meant to be blockbustery that was going to be released in the summer um be nc-17 that would have been a disaster but at the same time it's like they kind of cleaned it up too much a little bit i don't know it is still i don't know robin what do you think i'm still freaking terrified of this film and i've seen it five or six times and there are scenes that i just still close my eyes as a you know woman in her late 30s but alicia may i posit your own <laughs> may i posit i'm not though i'm not t- well yeah but i still loved this yeah, film when I, was, when I was little like i loved this film this was this really sort of because it was just i found sam neill so terrifying and he's not supposed to be terrifying because he's dr grant but here he yeah. is you know going full like hellraiser pinhead I mean, I, I'm a horror person and I found this film truly terrifying. And that was before I even knew that so much had been removed from it because it was like more terrifying than that when it 
initially started out. I mean, I think the gore is one thing, but the psychological aspect of it, and I totally agree that, you know, the secondary characters are really giving, given short shrift and they're basically there to be like, you know, they're human stakes, like this person could die. And like, it's like a slasher film. There's all these secondary yeah. characters that you utterly don't care about, but they're just like, you know, bodies that could potentially <laughs> be casualties if the monster kind of gets to them. And so, but what surprises me about Event Horizon when I watch it, because I've watched it many, many times, is that I actually don't care that there's so little character um, uh, characterization behind all of these other people. Because what I think the film does really well is you still feel like there are enough stakes. And I think the casting is part of that reason. So for me, like Sam Neill, Lawrence Fishburne, Jason Isaacs, mm -hmm. these are like heavyweight yeah actors who can build a lot of backstory just into the way they kind of do line delivery and they carry themselves. And so I think even though a lot of that backstory, particularly Kathleen Quinlan, I was who, say, yeah, yeah, like yeah. her son, like you get like kind of snippets of it, but it's not really ever explained like what's happening with her son or what's wrong. He's, or what's, she's in a know, wheelchair. Wrong. We see in a flash and she's watching like a home movie. And so we know that she's not supposed to be on the ship. She wants to be home with her yeah. son, Davey, who is, um, afflicted in some way he can't walk mm -hmm. uh we know that because her her flash her like terrifying hallucinations kind of show his legs um maimed but i would mm -hmm. say like get the impression it was her yeah, fault yeah, right I like maybe it was she's her given fault. a yeah. lot of backstory she's maybe the only character other than Lawrence fishburne to get that official backstory so i would say that when the little boy then starts creeping around the ship when you know he shouldn't be there it's very don't look now it's very nicholas rowe mm -hmm. i actually was more scared of that as an adult than the scenes that scared me as a child of all the gore because he's wearing this hoodie he's walking when you know he shouldn't be he's like leading her to her death i don't think that's a spoiler this is more flatliners yeah. guys <laughs> it's, Am flat I wrong? it's, like it's definitely you know it's, it's anderson also looking at rogue because if you look at the way the hoodie yeah. hood is pointed it's like the little the, the scary little person in the red yeah the red jacket so like i think that's very and even some of the lighting is similar i mean you're not in venice you're on a spaceship but yeah. you know <laughs> same thing um yeah but yeah, but like that, her story, because she's like mama bear. So you need that a little bit of that backstory yes. to make sense. But also the smartest thing Paul W.S. Anderson did was include that relatively long scene of dialogue between Lawrence Fishburne and Jason Isaacs, where it's like all, you know, they're in that magnificent production design and Lawrence is saying like why he can't ever lose another man and it's not like particularly amazing dialogue I mean this is like I can never lose another man like we hear this in all these like grizzly like yeah. captain stories no man left behind yeah but Fishburne sells it because Fishburne I mean to get a caliber of actor like Lawrence Fishburne and I was like what was really his career before the Matrix because there's before Matrix Lawrence Fishburne oh, and after he was Matrix. amazing before the Matrix. this is before Matrix. Cover and, and I know that King and, <laughs> and now looking I was like oh yeah everything right and it's because it, he was a megastar at this point he's a huge Crooklyn. get for this movie so and I'm sure he had I'm just naming Lawrence Fishburne <laughs> Boys in the Hood was oh, like yeah. at the beginning yes. of the 90s but he really sells it and and it is a weirdly yeah. long scene for a horror movie like where there's nothing there's no action happening it's mm -hmm. just character building mm -hmm. and that in itself made me invested in in what was going to happen to people because Cooper is too jokey. So it's like, you can't really, all you know is like, he's kind of the rescue tech. Starks is like the blonde who they kind of turn into the final girl at yeah. the very end, you know? Yeah. So nobody else. Yeah. 
kind of gets to you in the same way. Agreed. I agree completely. Kathleen Quinlan and Lawrence Fishburne are kind of the MVPs. Um, and that makes sense. When you have a, an ensemble that has this many characters on a spaceship, even if you look at something like Alien, you can only really highlight three with a backstory, right? Mm-hmm. Otherwise you're making, and I mean, Paul W.S. Anderson did make an overly long film because his initial cut was 130 minutes. So for all we know, a lot of the backstories were cut out. They were, because almost all of the backstories involved those extremely violent, uh, that violent imagery and that uh, that grotesque imagery. And that was because you're seeing the nightmares of what those right. people are, right? Like what their, what their storyline would be. So with all of that gone, you lose it. So I actually have a question for you guys that I'm really, I've been thinking a lot about this and I'm interested. Does R-rated imagery need to be there to move forward plots? Like what is the point of R-rated imagery? So I think about a movie like Martyrs, which in its like, in its core, it's a really disturbing, horrible film. And then you add on this like grotesque imagery that's like all in close up and terrible things happening. Do you need that? Does that add more to the story or is it a gimmick? This is my question for you guys. I think, and I'm going to maybe lose my horror fan card over this, but I have not seen Martyrs (laughs) because I know it's the one movie that's going to traumatize me. Two different people have given me the DVD and I'm like, I simply refuse. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) I made it halfway through, Robin. I'm with you. I can't do it. Having been raised Catholic, I'm like, no, this will give me actual PTSD. But um, I do, I mean, once again, I think it depends. There's no easy answer. I've certainly seen R-rated backstory put into horror films for no other reason than it seems like easy shock and gimmicks, you know, and it hasn't worked. And I think sexual assault is definitely one of those, that's right? Like when you're seeing that kind of stuff that's not necessary. That's exactly yeah. it. And even nowadays, you you see more of the like, somebody's child died and we're going to show it super in a graphic way um, because it's a cheap way to kind of communicate that somebody's at their lowest point mm-hmm. because we can't imagine anything worse than like something happening to somebody's child, which is true. But now I think it's become very exploited and, and like too much of a shorthand and you're not actually doing the work of building a character or a story. You're just like, this is horrible. The child is dead. And so in that sense, I'm really glad we don't see too much more of Kathleen Quinlan's um, yeah, son because we see just enough, right? To like understand that she's in pain and feels guilt and why she's kind of maternal to everybody else on the ship. Yeah, because she's the character of Baby Bear, who is the youngest uh, person on the crew who we watch basically have his insides explode uh, in a pressure chamber. It's very upsetting. And so, yeah, that setup works really well. I mean, they're all kind of motherly to Baby Bear, um, who is comatose for a lot of the film. Yeah, I don't know, Robin, just kind of to echo what you were saying, I'm thinking about kind of the difference or the trajectory between Alien with Ridley Scott and Aliens with... Um, James Cameron and kind of the difference of how um, Ripley, which this will factor in hugely to our next film, how she's, <laughs> she doesn't really have a backstory at all in the first film. And it's still remarkably effective. Um, it's a film that holds on the gore until about the halfway mark, I would say. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, Chestburster scene is where it peaks. Um, and it's still so effective. And even, you know, it's as effective as Aliens, where we get the full backstory that she has a daughter. Um, the daughter would be, you know, in her 60s or something like that at this future point. So a lot of um, the motivation for her to take Newt on as her surrogate daughter is that she's sort of lost the opportunity to be a mother prior. This is not the same. I mean, it is the same Ripley in Alien, but it's just a more fleshed out uh, Ripley. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't affect my enjoyment of Alien that I, I, well, first of all, you have Jonesy. So, I mean, as someone who is childless, <laughs> that yeah, cat, someone that who's cat. childless and, and sliding into spinsterhood quite quickly, um, I having a horror film with a cat in it where the cat's the final, one of the final 
like survivors is very <laughs> effective to me. See, this is interesting to me because I think about the idea that the the first movie, the reason why you don't need all the backstory of these people is the camaraderie is so strong. Do, and so you, oh, you feel like it, the, the movie feels lived in. Mm-hmm. And I think that's yeah. the argument why people think that movie still holds up. And I, that's the thing I think is missing here possibly mm-hmm. with those backstories is I get the idea that most of these people just showed up on set for the day and they're shooting. Yeah. I don't get that idea. They've been on this journey. They've been there. Because that, that, um, Dr. Weir is the new, the new component, mm-hmm. right? And I don't know if I see enough joking around and camaraderie with the core base that then he comes in and surprise, surprise, he's the bad guy um, and then tears all this camaraderie apart. And I think that's what I'm missing is the core and then the the foreign unit comes in and tears them up. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Like they never really seem like a cohesive unit. The only time they seem like that unit is when they're like when there's backlash against Dr. Weir for being there and kind of taking them off their course, then they all kind of group together to kind of um, hate on him in that one scene. But that's the only time you sense any kind of history between them. And it's funny because we're given all this Dr. Weir backstory. And I don't know if it's Sam Neill's such an interesting actor because he has like this, like, kind of edge of sleaze about him but now if you're on his social media oh, he just best. looks like the most charming oh, the sheep, like, the dogs the winery <laughs> I looked up like is this wine available for purchase it is not his constant like banter and obsession with Jeff Goldblum know, like, it's, it's lovely he's so adorable and so I don't know why like this is the image he projects whenever he's in a film but I never you're never quite on Dr. Weir's side even though you see that he has this trauma and you feel kind of bad for him it always seems like he's just one step away from turning. And so when it happens, it's not shocking enough for me. I'm just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Sam Neill, this is, that's just, it's gonna, it's gonna happen. It's like Jack Nicholson. And I, I, I definitely sat beside yeah, Sam yeah. Neill at Sundance and he showed up to a student experimental film showcase by himself <laughs> the night him. that he had just God premiered um, uh, Hunt for the Wilder People. So it was a big year at Sundance. This would have been 2016. And I'm like, I'm obviously the person who shows up for this experimental student <laughs> showcase. And I look behind, I look like one seat over, like I, to be honest, it was two seats over. He wasn't directly beside me, but there was a seat that was empty beside me. And there he was. And I lo- I was just like hunkered down in my like down coat, just going like breathing quickly. Like, what do I do? He was, no one, no one approached him, which was amazing. Um, and he just, he sat for an hour of student shorts and, I kind of like walked behind him and uh, it was a great moment in my life. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Did he at the end of it, not at the screen, go, that'll do. Put on his fedora and off he uh, went. Yeah, it, was, it was just so invigorating seeing top talent at Sundance that year go yeah. to a screening like that on their own accord. Like it gave me, I already had immense respect for him. It gave me just incredible more respect for him. At the time, in 2016, I was thinking more along the lines of Jurassic Park um, mm-hmm. and less along the lines of the guy from Event Horizon. <laughs> <laughs> but he's also an actor that never phones no. it in. It doesn't possession, matter what he's in. It doesn't matter if the movie makes oh sense or not. I yeah. love Possession. Don't get me. He's having a good that, time. That yeah. might can't be tell the me he's not having film fun. To Event Horizon in his filmography, like Possession and Event Horizon. Are <laughs> uh, not Mouth of Madness. Oh, Mountains of Madness. Mouth of Madness. That's a film. Mouth of oh, Madness. Yes, yes. <laughs> like, listen to our episode on In the Mouth of Madness with, with Brendan Ross. That would be my suggestion from last season. 
So, okay, now I want to bring us in a slightly different direction just as we kind of wrap up this segment. Now, I watched a lot of the making of behind the scenes thing of this. This is a movie people like really love. There's a call for a director's yeah. cut, but it will never happen mm-hmm. because all of the footage is gone. There, there Apparently, was some um, footage found about in a Transylvanian salt mine um, with no yeah. explanation as to why the footage was in a Transylvanian salt mine. Uh, they also found footage from, in the same find, uh, Clive Barker's Nightbreed, which I like the idea of like two reels of film, Nightbreed and Hellraiser sitting beside <laughs> each other going like, how did we get here? <laughs> Who will ever find us? Let me tell you how we got here. <laughs> That's, and apparently there was a VHS yes. that, they, that had all of it on it that he says he hasn't seen yet as of the re- interview I read in like 2019. Yeah. Like it's recent, recent. Yeah, the special effects supervisor um, it, but I mean, it's quite, you can't, it's very questionable. You can't make a, yeah, we are, we're, it's going to be tr- problematic. Yeah. 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 The rest, 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 I don't know. They did what they did with Get Back. Maybe they could do that with a bad VHS <laughs> copy that's been in a salt mine. Get Peter Jackson <laughs> to resurrect Just make everybody uh, look horizon yeah. with artificial intelligence. Uh, he's not busy. <laughs> he's fine. <laughs> all right. So that having been said, one of the things is I'm watching all this like backstory thing, um, even at the time, this is all contemporary interviews, Paul Anderson talks about making choices of CGI versus mm-hmm. practical of what's going to look real and what's going to age well. Now, uh, I think Jurassic Park really is the gold mm-hmm. standard of integrating those two things. Like even watching it now, it's hard to see some of the CGI Agreed. that's there because it's mostly yeah. used for smooth. Thing, yeah. Right. What do you guys think about this kind of turn of the turn of the century, literally a change from uh, doing everything practical, which can be more dangerous into this world of CGI that might not look as realistic, especially 97 being a big turning point? I mean, I think um, there's that interesting interview with some of the VFX people and they talk about like that initial shot where you're kind of like coming upon the event horizon and it's like supposed to look like one long shot Mm -hmm. and how many different setups it took and, you know, like how onerous it was and then using CGI to kind of augment some of it and that taking like months and months. Um, And I mean, I think that's always the goal where you have this combination of like miniatures and, and CGIs. And actually it seems like most a lot of horror directors, maybe not most, are going back to more practical effects yes. because it, even though things are more likely to look real now, there's still this uncanny valley because you know it's not real and it looks, and CGI still to this day looks too smooth. So I actually, you're right. I go back and I watch Jurassic Park and I don't understand how a movie from like 1991 um, still looks better than some of the films we have mm-hmm. today. It looks better than the modern Jurassic Park. It does. 100%. <laughs> But I, but I think like this discussion was kind of animated here because if you look at the the later horror movies, like even those set of movies that were like reviving, you know, like House on Haunted Hill and like 13 Ghosts. I was just thinking of that. Oh, those yes. are like filled with nothing but CGI and they look ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Like if you go, I mean, they looked ridiculous at the time, but if you go back now and watch them, you can tell they had like a grand concept of how to make this horror film, like, you know, um, all about like the spirit world. And now we have the technology so we can really make it look real. And it just ended up looking like a cartoon. Yeah. Um, it, it's, yeah. Really, it's a bad sign when um, the haunted mansion at Disneyland looks more authentic <laughs> than your movie. <laughs> That's bad. That should be the, the benchmark. Because those effects in the haunted mansion someone needs to scare yeah. the hell out of me. Like they are like very real, and I was like, "How do they do it?" Again, Alicia, may I pause? This? <laughs> no. All right, I'm gonna stop ganging up on Alicia here. 
So I just want to talk about it in light of, of Hellraiser and why I think Event Horizon is like so scary. Because when you talk to people of like my age, like older millennials, young Gen Xers, it's still li- like I, it's still on the list of the films that scare the most. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, like even though people have like issues with, you know, there's holes in the explanation, like the gravity drive, you know, like it doesn't completely make sense what he's saying. Right. Well, uh, using Raymond's terms, use a retaining magnetic field to focus a narrow beam of gravitons. These in turn fold space-time consistent with Vale tensor dynamics until the space-time curvature becomes infinitely large and you produce a singularity. Now, a singularity... Layman's terms. Well, fuck layman's terms. Do you speak English? There's a couple of factors that I think get to everyone. One, you know, claustrophobia. You're on this, like... Right. On, you're on this vessel. You have another vessel. That other vessel's destroyed. So you're on this, like archaic vessel that has nothing but dead bodies. So it's a haunted, you know, space in space. Um, So there's nowhere to go. But also... It is a ghost ship. Yeah, exactly. But also this idea of like, and the same thing in Hellraiser, there's a, a realm of hellish physical pain that combines ecstasy and pleasure and torture like that is so unsettling because dr weir knows he sees at one point what's happening and he like voluntarily goes towards it and we don't know if you know it's he wants to be where his his wife is and he's just kind of like lost all will to live but there's a kind of glee in him when he tries to force people to stay with him on the ship to go towards this this hellish dimension and just seeing the the torture that's happening in these little clips that you get throughout the film and then like reconciling that with this man of science being like oh yeah like this is where i want to be is there's something very it's so um it's so like suicidal and like kind of self-destructive that for me that was always the kind of core of the discomfort I agree. i'm with you i'm with you and i think i mean the biggest issue i have i, I wish he'd had more time to make this cuz i feel like there is like a really solid interesting film in here that we would talk about like we talk about aliens mm-hmm. and i think paul anderson is is capable of that not that we've seen a lot of it with his his <laughs> later work but i think he puts his investment into into this this movie this is meant to be his like calling card magnum opus and i, I the one thing i just want to touch on before we go we didn't really mention this is that titanic was originally supposed to be put in in august and if you watch the tv show you can hear all about what went down with titanic and uh, of course a titanic was going to be delayed and everyone was was worried it was going to be a huge bust and so Anderson and his crew only had four weeks to shoot this film and six weeks for editing and VFX. So they started shooting and editing at the same time, which is mm, insane. Like, I can't even imagine doing that. Still advised <laughs> is correct. Um, so that you have something that looks as good as it does. Robin, I'm totally with you. That has, like, it has a cohesion. Like, it's not just, like, cuckoo bananas. Oh, this is happening. This guy's jumping out here. Now this mm-hmm. guy's bad. There is a through line here that this is as strong as it is. Speaks to that Paul Anderson. I'm going to say it. A a very decent filmmaker, Mm -hmm. perfectly competent. I wish he'd had more time to really flesh this out. And pun totally intended. Agreed. Okay, let's move on to our next film. Of course, we're talking about one of the most controversial entries into (laughs) the Alien franchise. And that's going to come up after the break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. If there's one thing the Alien franchise movies have in common, and I'm talking about Alien 1 through 4, none of this Prometheus AVP business, it's that they're helmed by visionary directors with a distinct style which elevated them beyond typical horror fare. From the quiet, relentless tension-building of Scott, to the action-packed metaphors of Cameron, to the somber and reflective grayscale of Fincher in Alien 3, each of the movies is wildly different in how the continuing story of Ripley and the Xenomorphs is told. So when Alien 4 finally burst out of gestation, five years after Alien 3, it made sense that a French director who was influencing a ton of the way Hollywood movies looked would be chosen. Alien 4 was an attempt not only to revitalize the Alien franchise for a new millennium, but also bring back a beloved action horror icon. With that having been said, now that we've all seen Alien Resurrection, Robin, should Ripley have stayed dead? Yes. My goodness, yes. <laughs> I say that as somebody that loves Ripley. I mean, consider naming my both my pets and a child Ripley. <laughs> in that order. Um, in that order. Yep. Um, and I really... If you didn't go with the pets, I'm sure you wouldn't have gone exactly. with the Exactly. It, it didn't happen for okay, many reasons. Okay, first of all, Ripley's citizen... Is maybe one of the greatest names of all time. Great name. That is the name for greatness or a name for like, oh, this guy's going to be in trouble. It's a missed opportunity, but I'm not having any more kids to test out that theory. But I think like, I'm also an Alien 3 truther. I Mm. think that movie was really genius and she was great in it. And that's where her arc, I just felt so bad for Ripley in this film. Like she, all of her dignity was removed from what they did to her. And I'm just like, why did she deserve this? You know? Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Yeah. She should have just stayed dead. Agreed. Alicia, before we go any further, do you want to give us a quick plot summary just in case people haven't seen this one? You don't have to go all the way back. You don't have to do the whole alien franchise. 600 years of space history. Here we go. Um, So this takes place 200 years after Alien 3, David Fincher's version of the film, uh, takes place. So Ellen Ripley dies on a penal colony in Alien 3. And 200 years later, um, there is the U.S. It's essentially the U.S. It's like a world military um, have plans to clone uh, Ripley from DNA that they found of her remains. uh, And in order to also clone the alien that was inside her when she dies, I think we can all remember her falling into the vat of fire with the alien jumping out, that kind of thing. So they're going to try to get this body so that they can breed the alien um, as a biological military weapon. Wayland Utani's a company is gone. It's kind of a funny joke in this film because cloned Ripley keeps referring to the company and they're like, oh, that company like it bit the dust like 150 years ago. Uh, and so 
the way the military are going to do this is they need bodies, obviously. So they hire a mer- some mercenaries who are aboard a ship called the Betty. And this is where Winona Ryder comes in, where Ron Perlman, Michael Wincott, um, Dominique Pignon. Uh, this is a great cast of these mercenaries. And so what they've done is they've stolen, they've hijacked a ship full of people in stasis. I think they're scientists. And they deliver them to this military ship called the Auriga. And they're going to implant these like sleeping, mili- these poor sleeping scientists with like the breeded alien clone. Involuntary insemination. Yeah, involuntary mm-hmm. insemination. We have a Ripley that looks human. She's known as Ripley 8, which implies that there's been at least seven versions that didn't work. We do find that out actually very horrifically. In this film. <laughs> Ripley 8 is um, the DNA between Ripley, Ripley or one, Ripley original, OG Ripley, let's call her. Her DNA is mixed with the aliens. So this Ripley 8 has acidic blood, not as acidic as the aliens, has superhuman strengths like the xenomorph. Um, she's a hybrid. And so they keep her alive even after they're able to extract the alien queen out of her just kind of as an experiment and that is where they went wrong (laughs) this is why they all die is that she's not just is she as powerful as ellen ripley was and very intelligent she has the physical abilities of the xenomorph so she encounters she she knows she doesn't want the alien to get to the space to get to um, earth which this ship has an issue and it's going to return to earth if there's an issue with the alien on it uh and many aliens um so she teams up with the kind of crew of the of the betty led by winona Ryder to and winona Ryder is is aboard the ship knowing like she's downloaded files so she knows this government conspiracy is happening like she is there primarily to kill ripley the clone but they once the queen is already gone it doesn't make sense so they they bond um it, it gets wackier from there uh, we get a like a, a, a Ripley like child hybrid alien that is one of the most it's very horrific to me I found it very so weird scary. human eyes but like I am just saying that it's a missed opportunity that they didn't leave the double genitalia in I want it I want <laughs> yeah. to see them CGI'd back in I do not like they're gone H.R. Geiger yeah H.R. Geiger we should say very problematically is not credited for the designs of these aliens. And that's because they kind of go off the original Geiger alien. Um, oh, it's Geiger. I always say Geiger. I know it's Geiger, but um, they I go after the Geiger. Yeah, I, know. I know we had to like fact check it because I said Geiger on the shoot. And that means none of my footage is going to make it. <laughs> but, uh, it comes down to that people. That's But Geiger um, obviously was credited for the first film. And he's so responsible for the look of the alien. Um, and he would have been close. I think he dies maybe 10 years after this. I can't remember what he died. But, like, it's sad. He was kind of upset that they didn't credit him. But he did like this film, which I find interesting. Um, yeah, I don't know. So it was originally going to have this this hybrid alien. It was going to have both a penis and a vagina. You can see photos of it on Wikipedia in a little maquette. Um, terrifying. Utterly terrifying. And they did make a cut <laughs> with this. And the studio executives at Fox, presumably, were like, you absolutely not like that's gonna that's gonna be what gets us an nc-17 that there's a creature <laughs> with a penis and a vagina and they had to actually cgi it out of like a prosthetic mm-hmm. like a, a real animatronic they had to see that they, they weren't going to use cgi for they had to cgi out the penis vagina can we just talk about how absurd it is that a movie where people are getting like repeatedly um <laughs> like penetrated by an, a, a tiny alien head the thing that's going to get them the NC-17 is like an intersex alien. 
Yeah, this movie more than any. So like something I love about the Alien franchise that I think I kind of touched on earlier is that every single one is different. So you have an action movie and you have a quiet horror. And this is a slasher movie. Mm -hmm. This one more than any of the three is a slasher. And like you just think of that moment with Dan Hedaya, like for some reason he's in this movie, (laughs) gets smacked in the back of the head, like you said, and he pulls out a piece of his own brain and looks at it like a Hannibal. (laughs) I was going to say it's Hannibal, which is... Yeah, I was like, what is happening here right now? What movie am I watching? And all of this breaks my heart because one of my favorite directors of all time is Jean-Pierre Jeunet. He's one of the reasons I became a cinephile. Uh, um, Delicatessen broke my Mm -hmm. face when I was 13 years old. I'd never seen anything like it before. I've never seen anything like it since. A Very Long Engagement is still on my top five films uh, of all time. I think it's it's one of the best movies that captures the horror of war in a bizarre, stylistic way. I love him so much, and this movie makes me cry <laughs> because I feel like he's self-centered from the very beginning. And reading interviews, it sounds like mm-hmm. that. It, as happened. soon as this came out in 1987, it was released in November. So if you can picture this as a Christmas movie, it was. Uh, it, he <laughs> he blamed his translator because keep in mind he was hired for this. Because of the screenplay of Amelie, Amelie had not been produced, but the screenplay was kicking around, and really his his um, portfolio was City of Lost Children, which is a masterpiece, and mm-hmm. the test, like you say, Becky, was huge. And so he was the first, he was shocked he got handed this, but he was game for it after it had been declined by W.S. Anderson. Um, and he blamed, he didn't speak English, really at all, no English, not even like passable English, like I believe he had no English. So they hired, the studio hired him a translator. And so he blames everything that's wrong with this film on the translator, that the translator like took over directing and wasn't actually translating what Jean-Pierre Chenet was instructing. So I'm just like, that is a baffling story. Like that is fascinating. That's, I mean, even if the translator was making like poor directorial choices, (laughs) what I find like so disappointing about this, because City of Lost Children and Delicatessen were like mind blowing to me as well. And those are gorgeous. Those are gorgeous films with like uh, amazingly imaginative, like production design and Mm -hmm. sets and like, you know, camera move. And none of that for me really exists in this film like the design of the ship doesn't feel interesting or innovative what's what they do with the sets is not really um like fascinating in any way or aesthetically pleasing or so I don't really know how that disconnect happened like I mean that's something that he could have flagged and this is also his first time working without his um, production partner and cinematographer and uh, production designer, uh, Carol. Yeah. Uh, Carol did all the production design, and he actually asked Carol if he wanted to come do this with him. And Carol said, there's no way in hell Fox is going to let me do my steampunky post-apocalyptic stuff. And I was like, that is what That's Alien what it is! Been. Yeah, <laughs> you typically yeah. think a bit of the Jeunet techno-gothic. Like, that does creep up in parts of this film but I, I completely agree with you robin it's underemphasized, and i would actually argue that the sets look cheap and i never feel, feel that about alien or aliens like the sets look amazing even though they're doing a lot with very little um they had more budget probably on this film and did um a lot less with more and that's unfortunate yeah. We're talking about how problematic this film is. I think the one place that his style and the one thing that's cool in this movie is the swimming scene. I think that to watch them swim and to watch them glide and, you know, the the actors not being able to breathe and the fact that that's almost all practical is an incredibly cool scene. Are you saying scene. that there are people in the rubber suits as the aliens swimming or the aliens CGI? <gasps> 
from my understanding, it's a half and half. Oh, wow. So I'll take there it. are people like, yeah, they had like the hands and all that were in were practical, but the rest it's of that really is, I mean, you can see the CGI That's of really this. I think that's, I think it gives them a new environment. I think it's a really smart new way to look at the creatures because you look at Alien 3 and they're like, okay, what would happen if this thing burst out of a dog, right? Mm-hmm. Like, how do we make this thing scarier and kind of upgrade it? And I'm going to say swimming aliens, much more frightening than hybrid aliens. I agree. And and I think it's because you're you're learning the extent to which an alien is a perfect predator. Mm-hmm. Like not only can it mm-hmm. do land, not only can it exist in space, but it's like also that deft in water. Like there's really, a great point. I mean, this is, this is the apex <laughs> of like extraterrestrial and terrestrial and underwater predators. And it's disturbing. And you find out how many aliens are on that ship. It's like 12 at one point. I yeah. mean, yeah. yeah. You do Nobody get, a, you shot. Do get well, a shot of the predator alien hybrid in a high school swimming pool at an alien versus predator requiem. I will say that we never okay. have to comment or <laughs> <laughs> I think I saw that movie in the theater, but I don't remember anything about it. But the uh, that film was released on Christmas Day in 2007. What an odd world and I we saw live it on by. Christmas Day in 2007 and dragged my whole family. Um, you saw in the theater too. Oh, this is I will. I will this say is... that I, I feel like I should fess up. I have a soft spot for Resurrection, not as soft of a spot as I have for AVP as a franchise, which I absolutely love. But um, I do. I you know I've watched this film a few times for the channel for Hollywood Speed because we've had it and uh, I've, I've recorded pieces on it, and I'm always let down. I truly am. Much like you're saying, Robin, much like you're saying, Becky, but there's a little piece of me that remembers Alicia in 1997 who <laughs> thought this was cool. <laughs> Robin, I want to bring us back to something you yeah. said earlier about the idea of the dignity of of Ripley. Mm-hmm. And that I think you're so smart in this is I'm watching this and I'm like, we're not looking at Ripley. We're looking at a whole new character that just happens to look like Ripley. Mm-hmm. Did you sense that as a young woman that you were now supposed to empathize with Winona Ryder? You weren't there for Ripley anymore? Uh, For me, I was still with Ripley because it's not like about Ripley's, you know, memories, even though like we can tell that she has some from like her memories and then also maybe the xenomorph that was inside her. But it's, you know, my memory of that character through the franchise. And so I was still very interested in her, even though... I don't know, this is maybe a digression, but I felt like this movie had a weirdly horny representation of her. Mm -hmm. Like rewatching it, I'm like, it's very sensual. Like this clone is a very sensual Ripley. She's like kind of teasing Ron Perlman. She's caressing Winona Ryder's face. And for I just don't know what the reason was for that, but it was a very interesting choice to have her be. There's like an orgy scene where she falls, like she falls down a grate and then she lands in a bunch of aliens and she's just like, it is... Oof. I mean, I will say that Sigourney Weaver was intimately involved in this. She's credited as a producer or co-producer. Um, and it was really her green that allowed for this to happen. Like if she declined it, it there wasn't going to be an Alien 4. Um, she literally said she wasn't going to do an Alien 4. And then they drove a dump truck full of money to her home and said... Hop in. And they drove, she did. Yeah, they drove $11 million. I don't know if they drove. They might have wire transferred it. But $11 million. <laughs> drove. Um, she only accepts cash. Of a 70, I think it's a $78 million budget. So a significant amount of the budget is obviously uh, going to Sigourney Weaver. 
she had said no, and then uh, Joss. We haven't even said this is a Joss Whedon script. I okay, don't, do, I don't like pin in that about one. Joss yeah, pin in that one. Deeply problematic human being. Yeah. Skip forward Horrible like five man. minutes if you don't want to hear um, about him. Yeah, she likes the script. She likes the script, and so she and she apparently somehow in later versions of the script did have input. So I do wonder, Robin, if it's like the horniness comes from Sigourney Weaver, which. It does make sense to me because, like, think about the horniness of just the gestation period of these alien beings, the xenomorph. If she has a little bit of that in her, I kind of get where that horniness gets translated to. And the, the, she, it's a foil to the Ron Perlman character who's very horny and problematic and kind of gets his. Um, but, yeah, it is strange. It is, it's, it's really strange. She looks amazing. She looks phenomenal. She looks amazing. Oh, yeah. She looks like she's – I think Sigourney Weaver is – is the reason for a phrase like that's a handsome woman like she's just yeah. so elegant and like her features are so patrician I was just gonna and, say you and said she... patrician in season two <laughs> of a year in film and it's always stuck with me like because no I've never no one ever describes women now as patrician although sometimes Phoebe Waller-Bridge gets it but um you are completely right that is that is the word and I use that word in my vocabulary regularly now because of you Robin <laughs> you're welcome uh, but I'm with you Robin <laughs> I think of her and I think of Linda Hamilton like those yes. two are like sit in that same category great for me arms. of like women who great are arms. Like, yeah, great arms and and women who I'm like I would follow you into hell yes. <laughs> absolutely but not Winona Ryder so much I mean no. you ask about like I didn't I, I didn't identify with Winona Ryder and I'm a huge Winona Ryder fan you're Winona forever think she yeah. was that good in this like I, I yeah, feel like they didn't not. know what they wanted to do with her character here and we should say she's she's a an android she's like um, yeah I don't think it's spoiling anything. Anyone listening to this episode has probably seen Alien. <laughs> I would an say that I'm I'm such a big Alien fan that actually I have named all of my devices after the Alien androids and computers. So like my main computer is Mother. My my iPad is actually Annalie Call. My phone is Bishop. Like they are. I, this is a thing I have done. I love that. None of them are named Ash because well, nobody likes and Ash. It's funny <laughs> that in this film it's Father. Like Father yes. is the computer controlling the ship, and Father sucks father is like oh there's a problem on the ship let's fly it back to earth but not check to see if there's these alien beings that are gonna like destroy the planet father is very one track stupid mind which I thought was kind of interesting with how this film plays with gender. All right. I do want to talk about like the original script concept because the original script concept to me is like really interesting and I can see why they wanted to make it is that it wasn't supposed to be Ripley who was brought back. It was supposed to be Newt. Newt and they yeah. were going to start a whole new franchise around Newt and a younger woman and kind of watching her go through. And the reason why they hired Joss Wheaton for this was because of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Because if you want strong female characters, you hire Joss Wheaton, you don't hire a woman. So I'm kind of fascinated at that that concept and at the very end of the movie the act three was supposed to take place in a battle on earth and they decided not to do that for budgetary reasons people have asked joss whedon if he feels like his script was ruined and he's like no that's basically the script i wrote with the exception of the ending now watching this and knowing joss whedon's sort of quippy tone mm -hmm. can you see joss whedon's writing in this that he says that the lines were delivered wrong and the casting was wrong do you see that and do you agree I mean, you can definitely see that it's his kind of snarkiness. And for me, that's a big part of what doesn't work about this film. Mm -hmm. Like there's the thing about Junet films is that there is humor in them, but it's a more whimsical humor that feels more organic to the situation. But like all the one-liners in this film felt very effect, like affected to me and it, yeah. it didn't really make sense in the, in the story. And so, I mean, I say that as somebody that, you know, 
Firefly fan, you know, um, Serenity fan. And so like, I can definitely appreciate that type of quippiness and I like it a lot, but here it just didn't work it with the tone flat. of the film. And I think how could that quippiness be translated by someone who doesn't speak English? I know that that's terrible. Like I'm not, I'm not in any way saying people who, who English is their first language are, you know, ability, disability, or they don't. But like in this case, if you're trying to be quippy and very like mm-hmm. repartee bring elements of like the western elements because aliens is very quippy as well if you think about the bill paxton character yeah then giving it to someone who doesn't speak english and so the slang is not the same the the delivery is not the same even where you put your noun is not the same it's not going to mm-hmm. work yeah it's about time we start associating with a better class of people I think, too, about um, there's specific writers, and Joss Whedon is one of them. Amy Sherman Palladino is another one, where they have such a specific style of dialogue that if it's not delivered in that way, it doesn't work. And when you have a long-running TV show like Gilmore Girls or Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you see the actors who can't handle the dialogue, and then you do have to get very specific actors. This feels like the same thing, where he wrote it in his Joss whedon style, and if you don't have the actors that can play within that dialogue, it's going to fall flat. But it someone work. like Ron Perlman, if you look at Hellboy, if you look at I mean he can do that he can do that yeah, so easily and his lines really fall flat yeah um, yeah because they're all playing it straight there's no se- yeah you know what yeah. here's the problem there's no fun in this movie no there's not you're right it, well actually like the the scene that I have fun with that I totally forgot about until I was rewatching for for this was when Michael Wincott amazing like we don't get enough Michael Wincott his beautiful gravelly voice yes. um and he's so good looking in this mm-hmm. okay I'm sorry mm-hmm. uh, 17 year old Robin was very happy about him and Gary <laughs> Dorden being cast in this film but he has this whole dialogue with Dan Hedaya's character which is kind of which does feel like this very western like kind of feeling each other out kind of trying to establish dominance and that's film and his performance because Dan Hedaya is just like honestly sitting there um that felt like fun to me like some of the interactions between him and other members of that crew felt like they were kind of being loose with it but that's really the only part and then when caught is horribly killed 30 minutes (laughs) and I'm like that's the character you should have like had maybe like to the very end but exactly uh, yeah you know what I do like is that Dominique Pignon, who is a staple of Jouinet and Carole films, if you've ever seen any of them, he's, he's in good. every single one of them. He's mm-hmm. he's good, and he's playing a disabled character who lives. So, you know yeah. what? I'm down with that. I appreciate that. It's not like, a, oh, which one was it? Three. Um, uh, Friday the 13th, part three, where they kill the guy in the wheelchair, which mm-hmm. just set the precedent for everybody. Or Mac yeah. and me, when they shot the kid in the wheelchair in the Japanese version. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh my gosh. That happens. Google it. YouTube. Oh, my God. Okay. Last thing I want to bring up kind of before we go. So uh, the reason why Alien 3 was the one people really didn't like up until this one came out is because of the tone. They thought it was too dour and too sad. And then she dies at the end. And why do we want to sit through that? Because it's not a good time. Then this came out. So my question is, was this supposed to be trying to bring back like the weird color palettes and the fun? And that's why they like the Joss Whedon script. And they wanted like a big, colorful playground. Um to as a reaction to like everyone hated this about alien 3 let's make it all better in alien 4 what do you guys think i think probably unfortunately it seems like hollywood works like that a lot of times where, money. yeah they have an overreaction and they often misidentify what's not working about something so it's like was it the tone or was it like i feel like in some ways alien 3 was ahead of its time with what yeah. david fincher was trying to do not to say like all of it was successful and it was like quite dour but just because it didn't hit with an audience then doesn't mean it 
didn't work. And so you don't have to like overcorrect quite so much to find some way to take it in a different direction. And now we're seeing this with like Marvel movies and stuff. But also, you know, it's like if one thing doesn't work, then they're like, oh, we're going to make it super colorful. And it's like, well, was that what wasn't working or was it like a little bit more complicated than that? There's no such thing as nuance or measured acts in Hollywood. It's just like throw (laughs) the baby out with the bathwater. Um, extreme extreme reactions like it's just always a pendulum and that's where it doesn't make sense because if you look at the success of I mean Aliens is a very different film than Alien Um, Mm -hmm. but it works because Aliens understood James Cameron understood um, what worked so well about Alien and just amplified it instead of rewriting it or redoing it or reinventing the wheel he just was like what if instead of one alien we had multiple aliens and it's going to be called <laughs> wait for it aliens yes. that's all you need that's all you need you know what the people want paul riser let's get some paul riser in there hollywood a-lister paul riser <laughs> all right the other thing i have to say that really hurts is that this opened second at the box office to robin williams's flubber that's uh it's pretty rough oh wow yeah. okay this was a kind of rough stretch of time for robin williams too i mm-hmm. feel like i'm remembering toys it was like i don't know how what the time span was but there was a series mm-hmm. of movies toys that is were very... 1992 and i rewatched it two weeks ago and i'm going to agree with you robin that was the beginning <laughs> of the rough spell part of me part of me admires toys where i'm just like how why yeah. but because you God, won a bunch of beautiful. oscars and they didn't say no yes. that's why yes all right that having been said i think we are going to wrap this episode up so alicia fletcher thank you once again for joining us thank you becky very excited to have you on the podcast robin i do want to say that i think it's a missed opportunity to have someone not have created a trailer for alien resurrection as though it's a paul thomas anderson film i'm just throwing that out there there's a lot of like mashup trailers like someone should make the paul thomas anderson alien resurrection do your work, Twitter. <laughs> Make it look like Magnolia. <laughs> Robin Citizen, thank you so much for joining us. It was such a pleasure to have you for the first time, hopefully not the last time on the show. Yeah, it was so much fun. And I'm always here to talk about weird cosmic horror and hey. uh, aliens and Event Horizon. We, we cut Event Horizon out of the TV show. We had to. Uh, and I think that that horrified Robin. <laughs> so like that, <laughs> this is rectifying that situation. And the the TV series is on right now, and you can see Robin and myself and Alicia all uh, streaming on there, giving our opinions about various movies of the same years that we are talking about on the podcast. And you can join us next week, where nothing is quite as it seems. We're looking at the mind-bending exploitation movies of Breakdown and The Game, and we'll be joined by special guest Brendan Ross. That's coming up next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland. And today featured Alicia Fletcher and Robin Citizen as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagne. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kamaria. Creative consultant was Ryan Maines. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 